Well, good morning. Uh, thanks for being here this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one of these on the floor around you. And it's page 819 in this Bible. Again, it's Philippians chapter 2. Um, I'm going to give a disclaimer I didn't give in the first service. And that's... Sorry, was that me? Uh, I... Am I still on? Can you guys still hear me okay? All right, cool. Um, here's the disclaimer. I didn't give this in the first service. I'm going to give it now. I hate this message. It's really terrible. And it's terrible not because it's poorly written. I think it's all right, pretty well written. And not because it's a bad piece of scripture. It's terrible because every time I talk about this subject, the Lord pokes me with it. And I could feel in the first service people being poked. And, uh, and so if you get poked this morning, it's not me. <laughs> I'm all the way up here. <laughs> Uh, I'll just remind you, it's probably the Lord or your neighbor. Um, I've been, uh, my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. I've been spending some time, many of you know, I'm taking a sabbatical this summer. I'm really excited about that. And uh, I've been spending some time in the last couple weeks planning some of our trips. And I have needed uh, quick access to this. How many of you have a passport? Raise your hand if you have a passport. All right. Passports are really important. Uh, and um, I've had to make a few photocopies to send them to some uh, travel people and as I do, I get a chance to look back through here, and it's just a great reminder of some of the trips I've taken and places I've been. I remember just uh, in 2018 going to Africa and um, getting to see South Africa and Ethiopia and Kenya. I went with Team World Vision, and uh, many of you know those stories. And that was just a really cool trip, getting to meet some incredible people and see some just great work that God's doing on the ground there. And then there's some... Um, <laughs> Some trips in here to, to Myanmar. We have a ministry partner in Myanmar that helps teach uh, entrepreneurs how to run businesses with a kingdom impact. And I remember the first time I went, my friend Brad and I uh, were headed to uh, Myanmar and our flight was uh, Indy, Washington, D.C., Beijing, Bangkok, Yangon. That was our, that was our flight. And our, we got to D.C. on time. Our flight from Washington to Beijing was delayed about two hours. And... Um, so we were afraid we were going to miss our connecting flight from Beijing. And I'd never traveled through Beijing before. Uh, I didn't expect that it was a very um, efficiently run airport and not a place that I wanted to be stuck overnight. And so when our flight was two hours late getting there, I was very worried. We, we landed with literally 20 minutes before our international flight took off. And uh, as we got off the plane, got to the end of the jetway, and there was a, a woman standing there with a sign that said Bangkok. And she was saying in English, anyone going to Bangkok, follow me. And so Brad and I, we each had two suitcases because we were taking stuff to Myanmar and we got right in line and we're standing like uncomfortably close to this woman because in China, I don't know if you've been there, they don't have much personal space. And so we're right next to this woman and she looks and there's Brad and me and then there's two women that get behind us in line to go to Bangkok and she says, follow me. And she, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I said, she started running about a six minute mile, <laughs> like through the airport. <laughs> I don't think I'm exaggerating. Uh, and I was, for, for once in my life, I was like, I am so glad I'm a runner right now. And so I'm dragging these two suitcases, and Brad and I are just barely keeping up. And uh, after about three minutes, I don't know where these two women went, but I wasn't waiting for them. I was going with this woman, right, because she was getting me to Bangkok. And so um, we start going through these doors, and we go through this door that's marked, do not enter. At least it's in Chinese. I assume that's what it said, because it looked like a big red sign that would say, do not enter. And we open up this door, and I look up. And we, have you ever, if you've traveled internationally, you know this uh, scene where you're uh, in customs and there's like, I don't know, 5,000 people in line to get through customs and there's six customs agents there doing all the work. And we open this door and I realize we are behind the customs agents. 
Like we came in the back door of customs and there are 5,000 people now staring at us, wondering how we got there and what we're doing there. And this woman says, passport. And she, she took our passport and she took it up to the customs agent and said something to the man in Chinese, which I assume was a command. Uh, she probably knew the premier. And uh, he took our passports and looked at us and looked at them and he stamped them, gave them back to her. And she gave them back to us and she said, go. And she pointed us to our gate and we went and we made our flight with like five minutes to spare, literally five minutes to spare. Uh, unfortunately, our luggage didn't make it. And so we had to end up spending some extra time in Bangkok. But uh, it helped me realize how important your passport is, right? Because your passport helps define that you're a citizen of a place. And uh, as I was working with these tour operators this week, they, they warn you, they say, carry your passport with you at all times, but make a copy of it that you keep somewhere not on your person that's safe. And also make a copy of it and leave it with someone back here in the United States. And also take a picture of it and have it on your phone. And so it's like, okay, you don't wanna lose this thing is what they're trying to say because it tells people that you're a citizen of a certain place, right? That you have all the rights and privileges and protections that that place offers. Well, last weekend we launched this new series we've called Citizens. And we're studying through the book of Philippians. We're learning what it means to live as citizens of heaven here on earth. And if you're a follower of Jesus, what we learned last week is that this place uh, earth is not our home, right? You're visiting here. You're a tourist uh, because when you give your life to Christ, it's like you're given a new passport as a citizen of heaven. In fact, Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship, and this is writing to people in the church, people who are in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. But last week, Jerry said, uh, being a citizen of heaven doesn't start when you die. It's, it's true for us here and now. And last week, as he kicked off the series, he said, as citizens of heaven, it's our responsibility to bring Jesus to every person we meet and into every situation we face. Not only are we citizens of heaven, but we're ambassadors of heaven. We are from there, but we are to spread the love of heaven here to earth. And the author of Philippians, a man that we know as the Apostle Paul, took this responsibility very seriously. So seriously that we, we know now that uh, if you were here last week, you heard this, that when Paul wrote this letter, he was in prison. And for us, we often ask questions like, why does God allow good, bad things to happen to good people? Like, why would God allow suffering in this world? But Paul didn't ask that question. Instead, he saw his suffering as an opportunity to spread the gospel. And last week, as we studied Philippians 1, we know that he said that even as he was in chains, chained 24 hours a day to a Roman guard, he understood that uh, the reason he was in chains was that so that the gospel might spread throughout the prison. And in fact, even though he was in prison, he used that opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus. And he challenged the believers in Philippi to live this way as well, that in spite of the challenges and the struggles and the suffering that they were facing, that they could be, they were citizens of heaven and they could be ambassadors from there too. And that brings us to chapter two. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Paul is going to shift his focus to something that seems to have been a really tough problem, a specific problem in the Philippian church. We see the first hints of it in chapter two, verse one. So we'll start there. Uh, Philippians 2, one says this, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. So the problem, or at least a problem, the church was facing in Philippi was disunity. 
And we don't know how widespread this was. We don't know what the cause or the root of it was. But we do know that Paul had at least one specific relationship in mind because he calls it out later in the letter. In Philippians 4, he writes this, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And so this is a big deal that Paul would call out these two specific women, Euodia and Syntyche are women's names, and they apparently have some conflict, and we don't know like why that conflict is there. We don't know the root of that, but we do know it's bad enough that Paul calls it out in a letter that is preserved now 2,000 years later that all of us can read and go, I wonder what they were doing to each other. Um, but at the same time, I mean, this is, it's kind of like if I were to stand up here and go, you and you, you guys need to stop and get along. I mean, the whole church sees this, right? There's this disunity, this conflict, and Paul says that needs to stop. This is really, really important. He's trying to remind them that in Christ that we have way more in common than we have different from each other, right? There's more to our similarities than our differences. I, I notice this when, you, when I travel, maybe you do too if you ever travel internationally, um, that we tend to be attracted and drawn to people from our country, from our home. Uh, if you're in a foreign country, uh, I noticed that uh, I was in Paris one time many years ago, and uh, I'd spent a week there, and so you kind of get acclimated to just hearing French and only being around French people and only hearing French and speaking French. And then I was on the metro one night and I heard a couple speaking English to one another and it was American English. Like I recognized it, I could speak it, I knew it. And, and I, I was immediately drawn to them. And so I started talking to them and I found out that they were from the Midwest, actually from Ohio. And we started talking about the places that maybe we had in common and even the people that we might know or that people we might know might know. And uh, it was amazing to me to be reminded of just uh, how we're drawn to people from the place we're from. Like we, we couldn't stop talking about our home because we weren't from there. We weren't from France. We were strangers in a strange land. But here's what I noticed, that many more Christians today focus on their differences than their similarities. We're citizens of the same place, yet we let the issues of the land that we're visiting drive us apart and define us almost. I mean, maybe it's a stance on a, a divisive or controversial issue that you take, or maybe uh, it's support for a political candidate or a party. Maybe it's how we treat immigrants or people of other races. But I see all kinds of people who claim to be citizens of heaven who won't interact with other citizens of heaven because of our views on certain issues. Like we were divided on these issues all the time, but you know what I don't always see is people, those same people pointing back to scripture to talk about their viewpoint or, or pointing to a stance that Jesus took on an issue to support their position. You know what else I think is really rare in our society today is listening humbly to somebody who has a different opinion than us. Um, so Paul suggests, though, that we should be of one mind in the Lord. And that can be hard, even if it's a personal thing, that can be hard. And if you're experiencing conflict right now, uh, maybe it's really difficult for you. Maybe it's a conflict with a spouse or a child. Maybe you had it in the car on your way here, and you're not looking at each other right now. It's okay. There's, there, there's grace here. Uh, maybe it's an ex-spouse. Maybe it's a friend, a longtime friend or a coworker. Maybe it's somebody here at church and you had some kind of a deal and the deal didn't quite go right and, and there's, there's conflict now, there's something, there's tension between the two of you and they said some things and you said some things and if they just would stop being dumb and see things your way, everything would be better and, you know, but there's conflict. There's conflict in there. And, and in our flesh, we're really quick to justify our feelings. Like we have a perfect defense for the way things went and why we acted the way we did and why we said the things we did and, and why I'm right and you're wrong. And, and the Bible has a word for that. 
And the word is pride. It's pride. Pride was a problem in the Philippian church, and pride is a problem today. And at the root of almost every conflict we face is pride. In fact, James says it this way. James 4.1 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? In other words, James says, the conflict between you and me comes from what's happening in me. That hurt. John Stott, who was an Anglican priest and theologian, said it this way. In every step of our Christian growth and maturity and throughout every aspect of our Christian obedience and service, our greatest foe is pride. Now, pride at its most basic is uh, when we think more highly of ourselves than we should. That's the basic definition of pride. But Paul is going to argue as we go through this passage, he's going to argue that pride for a Christian is something different than that. He's going to say that pride is when we put ourselves in the place of God instead of recognizing our dependence on him. Uh, Author Charles Bridges says pride lifts up one's heart against God and contends for supremacy with him. When you say something or do something that's prideful, you're contending for supremacy with God. You're trying to take God's place as the supreme ruler in your life. Uh, You're trying to take his place on the throne. And here's the insidious thing about pride. For followers of Jesus, we can push it aside, but it never really goes away. In, In every step, it's always there. It's lurking. It's waiting for the opportunity to whisper how great you are. And we are so inclined to listen. Let me rephrase that. I am so inclined to listen. And whether you're brand new to your faith or just checking out Christianity, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long time, the potential for pride never goes away. It's in our thoughts, it's in our words, and it's in our actions. And because of that, we've always got to be on our guard against pride. Because as citizens of heaven, we're supposed to live differently. So we can look around society and we can see people exercising their pride all over the place. And you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to be different from that. Look, Paul goes on. Verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In other words, Paul says, Citizens of heaven shouldn't do anything that puts themselves in value above other people. Nor should we do anything because we consider ourselves better than others. But he says, in humility, value others above ourselves. And as I read this verse this week in preparing for this message, the first question that came to my mind when I said this was, which others? Which others is he talking about? Value others above yourself. Which of them? Surely he can't mean all others, right? Well, I read several translations of this verse and read through some commentaries this week, and I could not find a single qualifier in that verse that we're supposed to value the others we love above ourselves. We're supposed to value our family above ourselves. We're supposed to value those who agree with us above ourselves. We're supposed to value people who are richer than we are above ourselves. Or we're supposed to value people who are um, more complete human beings above ourselves. Uh, Instead, it just says others. We are supposed to value all others above ourselves. And we know how to do this. I think we know, uh, like inherently, we know how to do this because if we were to go to a dinner party and there was some like really important dignitary there or our favorite actor or our favorite athlete or our favorite musician, uh, how would we treat them? We'd be very very differential, deferential, right? We would um, 
tell them how important they are. We would tell them what their work has meant to us. We let them know that we're glad to be in your presence. And that's what it looks like to value others above yourselves. But we also know what it means, how it feels to value others below ourselves, don't we? Um, because we don't always let someone in traffic when they're trying to merge in front of us. Uh, we see somebody's opinion online and we think, well, if they think that about that, I can't trust them on anything else. Uh, or we're standing in line at a gas station and we think, won't this person hurry up? Don't they know their lottery tickets are far less important than me getting my gas and getting my kid to school? We have a tendency to value others lower than ourselves and we know how to do that, but we also know how to do it the right way. So Paul goes on. He says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And some of your translations might put the word only in there, not looking only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is about having as much interest in what's going on in the lives of other people as you have in your own life. And so uh, let me ask you, do you know what's going on in the lives of your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow students at school? Do you know what's going on in the lives of other people at this church? I mean, if there's an emergency in their lives, are you there to offer love and support? If something great happens, are you there to celebrate with them just like you would if it was somebody in your own family? That's a taste of what it means to look to the interests of others. Paul goes on, verse 5. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, this idea should not be new. If you've read uh, the Bible, if you've read much of the New Testament, you see this idea over and over and over again that, that uh, as we mature in our faith, we should be becoming more and more like Jesus, right? Um, uh, John talks about it in 1 John 2, 6. He says, anyone who claims to be in him should walk as Jesus walked, right? So there's this idea that as we grow closer to Christ, we should grow to be more like him. Uh, Peter uh, um, Peter writes, uh, just as the one who has called you to be holy, be holy in all that you do. Just as the one who has called you holy, be holy in all that you do. So through this New Testament, there's this theme. If we're in Christ, we need to be growing to be more and more like him. And Paul is going to say here that we should have the same mindset as Jesus. And Paul talks a lot about this in his writings, if you read it. Um, he talks about what it, how important it is that we think like Jesus thought. And so in Romans 12, he says you should be transformed. And how are we transformed? By the renewing of our mind. Right? In Philippians 4, he's going to challenge us. We'll hear about this in a couple weeks. He's going to challenge us to think about whatever is true and noble and right and pure. So here he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here's what that means. Verse 6, who being in very nature God, let's stop right there. Jesus was in very nature God. He was equal with God. He was fully God and he didn't hide this. Right? In fact, his claim to be equal with God is what got him into so much trouble with the religious leaders of the day. It angered them. Uh, it's what got him crucified. His claim to be uh, God and the Son of God, uh, they accused him of blasphemy. And they said, how can a mere man be God? How could God become a mere man? And, and, and it was outrageous, and to some extent they were right. I mean, how crazy is that, that God would come down and take the form of a man? It's outrageous to think that God, with all the power available in the universe, would take on the form of a man. But listen to what it says next, that he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. See, this is where Paul's definition of pride comes in. He says, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. All right, that means that Jesus never once put himself in the place of God. 
He never once used his power to elevate himself. He never once played the God card uh, to his own advantage or his own self-interest. In other words, Jesus never went to a restaurant and said, let me have your best table. By the way, I'm God, right? He, he never used the fact that he was God to move to the front of the line or to get a better parking space or to get out of a speeding ticket or get the job he really wanted or to get something for free or to, to win influence with someone. But we're not like that, are we? How many times do we take advantage of the teeny tiny little amount of power and influence that we have and leverage it for our own interests? I mean, after all, I'm the oldest, so what I say goes. That was my favorite when I was growing up. After all, my brother owns the company, so after all, I've been here longer than you, so I've got seniority, so uh, I've got more followers than you, so I'll just use my platform to cut you down online, right? We, we use the little amount of power we have to our own advantage. I just want you to see that Jesus never did that. He never did that. The guy who had all the power in the universe available to him never once used it to his own advantage or for his own self-interest. In fact, Paul says in verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Now, your translation may say he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And we've got to be careful here that we understand what this passage is really saying. Some people will point to this verse and say, see right here, it says that Jesus emptied himself, that he became not God, that he poured out all of his godness and just became a man. But that's not what Paul is saying. In fact, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And if you have a hard time understanding how this could work, that one person could be fully God and fully man, let me just assure you, you are not alone. For a couple of thousand years now, people have argued over this. In fact, in 451 AD, what's that, 1500 and some years ago, uh, a group of theologians gathered at the Council of Chalcedon to discuss exactly how this could have worked. How could Jesus be fully God and fully man? And this is the way that they described it. They said that Jesus, in eternity past, decided that when he added humanity to his deity, he would veil his deity so that his humanity could find full expression. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus came to earth, he looked so much like a man that he had a hard time convincing people that he was actually God. I mean, most of the people who interacted with Jesus didn't believe he was who he said he was. I mean, today, most Christians have no problem believing that Jesus was God, but we have a hard time believing that he was fully man. Well, back then, it was just the opposite. Everybody realized he was a man because they were walking with him. They saw him get hungry. They saw him get tired. They saw him cry. They knew he was a man. They doubted he was God. Today, I think we believe that he's God, at least those of us who are in Christ, who are Christians. We believe he's God. We have a hard time believing he was man, that he was fully man, that he really experienced what we experienced, that he really knows what it's like to walk in my shoes, that he's really been tempted like I've been tempted. But Hebrews 2 says Jesus had to be made like us in every way, so that he could be an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. Do you see it? Jesus, being equal with God, fully God, added humanity to his deity. He took the form of a servant, and he was made in human likeness. Theologian Bruce Ware said it this way, Never less than God, Jesus chose to live his life never more than man. That means he looked just like us. Well, not like us, exactly. I mean, he would have been Middle Eastern. Um, it's exactly what Isaiah had prophesied. Isaiah 53, 2 said that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, 
he just looked like a normal guy. No glowing face, no halo around his head, uh, nothing that people would look at him and go, wow, he's something special. He's just a guy, just a normal man. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But why? I mean, maybe you're you know, new to the Christian faith or you're just checking out church and this is a new, new uh, thought for you that Jesus, who had all the power in the universe, would humble himself to death on a cross. And you go, why, why would he do that? Why would God, what kind of a God would send his son to do something like that? Why would he send his son, or, or for that matter, if Jesus was God, why, why would he agree to go along with this plan? I mean, to leave heaven, to leave his rightful place of honor and power, to empty himself into a human body, to become a servant and then die a horrific death. Why would that happen? What kind of a God would do something like that? What could that have accomplished? Well, the answer is found back in that Isaiah 53 passage. It says this, but he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And sometimes that word iniquities is translated as sin. He was crushed for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed, that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God knew the power that sin has over us. Sin had power over God's people. God created this people that he was madly in love with. And he saw that sin had power over us. And he knew that the only way for the power of sin to be broken in my life and in your life was to send an even greater power to go conquer it. And so he sent his son, his one and only son, into this world to live a life of complete obedience and humility and to lay down that life as a sacrifice to pay for my sin. And the reason that Jesus refused to do anything for his own self-interest, I mean, the reason that he emptied himself into humanity, the reason that he allowed himself to be beaten and nailed to a cross, and the reason he exhibited such extraordinary humility was because of his extraordinary love for you and me. Jesus could have claimed to be a king here. He was offered all the kingdoms of earth. He could have been a powerful warrior on earth. His name and fame could have been spread all across the Roman world, but he chose servanthood instead. And do you know why? Because he wasn't a citizen of here. He was a citizen of heaven. He wasn't from this world. And so now when Paul says, don't just look out for your own interest, look to the interest of others. I've lost all my excuses, right? If I'm a follower of Jesus, Jesus put his own or my own interest above his own. So what excuse do I have to put my interest above somebody else's? And when Paul says, think of others better than yourselves, I've lost all my excuses. I don't even get to say who the others are. You know why? Because Jesus has said, everyone has value in his eyes. He died so that all could come to saving faith in God through Christ's death and resurrection. That, that means that no one, no one person you've ever met did Jesus deem unworthy of dying for. So then what happened as a result of Jesus' sacrifice? Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the, the second half of that passage speaks of a day that's still to come. 
God exalted Jesus to the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every other name. That has happened. He is there. Jesus sits at the right hand of God right now. He is praying and interceding on your behalf right now while you sit in this room. Jesus is in heaven praying for you at the right hand of God. Right now, Jesus is at the right hand leading his church. While we're all gathered here together, same thing in Noblesville, our Noblesville campus, all the churches all over Hamilton County, all over Indiana, all over the world, the church is gathered together in the name of Jesus, and Jesus is at the right hand of God leading the church. He's doing that right now. But someday, someday every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Not now, but someday every knee will bow, and every tongue will acknowledge that he is God but not yet. But the Bible reminds us that even though that's not yet, even now we should be united as believers. We should be of one mind and one spirit. That, that even now we should not do anything out of selfish ambition, ambition or vain conceit, but in humility we should consider others better than ourselves. That right now we should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather he made himself nothing and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. That right now, we should have that mindset. We should have the same mindset. Um, <clears throat> I didn't do this in the first service, but I felt it, <clears throat> and I'm feeling it now. And I'm, I know it because um, I felt it this week. <laughs> As I've processed through this message, uh, I have been poked and pierced and convicted. And um, every time I preach about pride, the Lord shows me pride in my life. And um, so I just want to remind you right now, if there's something you're wrestling with, that um, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, <clears throat> I have a good friend that says, uh, I'm responsible for something when I become aware of it. And that's what I was reminded of again this week. Like, oh, thank you, Lord, for pointing out that pride in my life. And uh, I'm now responsible for it. And so I just want you to hear that right now. I don't know who needs to hear that, but, <clears throat> you know, at one point in his ministry, Jesus told this story about humility. I love this story. It's, it's almost, uh, well, it's just really cool. Luke 14, he said this. He said, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat. Now, can you imagine going to the front row of some event and the host, the person inviting you say, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Um, by the way, can you please sit in the back? There's some more important people coming. We need these seats up here in the front. That's what Jesus is talking about. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. He said, but when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I don't think I need to tell you how true that is. I think we've all seen it in the lives of uh, the biggest self-promoters, the, the people who do the most to exalt themselves, whether it's an, an athlete or an actor or a, a musician or a politician. The ones who are the biggest self-promoters tend to have the biggest falls when it all comes crumbling down, right? Let me ask you, is there a place in your life where you're exalting yourself? Is there a place, an area of your life where you think more highly of yourself than you ought? Is there an area where you're in conflict with other followers of Jesus and your pride might be contributing to that? Where in your life are you trying to contend for supremacy with God? I just want you to consider these questions as we head into a time of communion.
Yeah, I'm sure these parables had quite an impact on the disciples that were there to hear them, but I don't think they had nearly the impact that his example had. And one of the things we see in scripture near the end of his life, Jesus showed his closest disciples what it means to serve others. It was the last night that they were going to be together and they were getting ready to eat dinner together and the disciples were all gathered in one place and Jesus uh, noticed that their feet were still dirty from the day's walk and uh, not having a servant in the room who would normally do the foot washing, Jesus um, took a towel and wrapped it around his waist and got down on his knees and he started to wash the, defeat, the feet of every disciple. He washed the dirt and the crud and the manure off the feet of his followers so that they could be clean for dinner. And talk about not being able to choose which others that we serve. Just think about who was in the room that day. I mean, Judas, the one who would betray Jesus, was there in that moment and Jesus washed his feet, washed the feet of his betrayer. So Jesus washed their feet and at dinner he stood up and he, he took the bread and he passed it around and he said, this is my body broken for you. Uh, when you take this, remember me. And then he took the cup and he said, uh, this cup is my blood. It's the blood of a new covenant. When you take it, remember me. And we're gonna take a few moments here in service and we're gonna do that together and celebrate communion. Uh, the way we take communion here is this. There are four tables. There are two in the front and two in the back. They all have the elements on them. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to pray and I'll release you. You can come to the closest table. Uh, grab your elements. There are two cups stacked together. The bread is in the bottom cup. You'll take that first. And the juice is in the top cup. You can take that last. That's the blood of Christ. That's the new covenant. Um, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to join us. You don't have to be a part of Genesis Church or any particularly faith, any faith or any denomination. Uh, but I'm going to ask, if you're not following Jesus, if you've never made him the center of your life, I'm just going to ask you to let this moment pass by. Don't, don't let it be awkward. There'll be people moving around the room, but you can stay in your seat and just, uh, the band's going to sing this song. And I, I just want you to look at the words on the screen and think about what would that mean for my life if that were true in my life? All right, I'm going to pray and then I'll release you to go get communion. Lord God, I'm uh, humbled by your presence here today. I'm humbled by the sacrifice you made. And anytime I try to elevate myself in people's eyes, I'm reminded, Lord, that you are the one that needs to be exalted, not me. That, that your work is the one that makes things happen in this world, not mine. That, that your face is the one people need to see, not mine. And so I thank you for that. God, I, I pray um, that you would keep us humble. Lord, as we leave this place today, that you would keep us humble, that you would help us to keep our eyes focused on you, to look at the things that are unseen instead of the things that are seen. God, I'm thankful for the sacrifice you made through Jesus' death on the cross. And we celebrate that now together, united as one church and one body, uh, together under one Lord and one spirit. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You're free to go get communion elements whenever you're ready.